A good Wednesday to you. That is Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen from their album Desolation Sounds. I've just received word. I, I think it's cool that I'm telling you this. I think it's all right that we're in a way, essentially, we're, I don't want to say announcing this because that makes it sound really official, but we're just mentioning this. We're just touching on this. There's a documentary set for release, and it's featuring the band Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen behind our theme song, and they're, they're much more than that. But we're grateful to have their artistic contributions to the show. A doc coming up on what it's been like for them to to release an album just days before the pandemic hit. The impact on the band, their creative journey, where they are now. It's something we're taking a look at and we will keep you in the loop as there are screening dates announced and things like that. Received word from their label, as a matter of fact, Fallen Tree Records a couple of days ago. I thought that was pretty cool stuff. I'm thinking maybe we get the lead, maybe we get Ayla on the show or something, talk about that doc, what it's like to have cameras following him around, you know, maybe how real talkers have changed their life forever. You can look forward to that in a future episode of Real Talk, assuming Ayla agrees to do the show. I think he will. Uh, it's Jesperson here with you on this Wednesday morning. Brooks and Hoyles along with me. We've got a great show coming up in just a second. We're going to take a look at uh, news updates from across the country, uh, including, as my friends put it, high fives and hugs. Typically a good sign, unless it's between border occupiers and RCMP. What the hell was going on in Coots yesterday? The good news is that blockade, as far as we can tell, has wrapped up despite pleas from Ottawa organizers saying stand your ground did you see this video yesterday uh, Ottawa occupation organizers holding one of, another one of their news conferences and they're pleading with those in coots they say stand your ground help is coming from the south er? CBSA Canada border officials confirmed that they, they are not granting entry to people that would appear to be attempting to join a border blockade from the United States. They would be vaccinated people coming up to protest against vaccine measures. But of course, they'd be coming up to protest against a whole bunch of other things, including the Trudeau government and essentially democracy. And so the Canada border officials say that's not happening. Coots is free flowing again. But what's the deal? I mean, charges laid now three people charged with conspiracy to commit murder after 13 long guns and thousands of rands of ammunition were determined or were discovered there. Rather, um, we're going to figure out where Tristan Hopper from the National Post and Sapria Dovetti land on this. They're going to be joining me in just about five minutes. Um, we we got to take a look at changes to travelers in Canada. There's there's essentially a woman has been cured of HIV. What Sarah's following that story. And we're talking about dry February today, uh, a real talk roundtable unsanctioned. You know, it's not Friday, but that doesn't mean we can't have other panel conversations. We're going to talk about dry or dry ish commitments, some of them longer than others. The sober life. I'm looking forward to the conversation. This show is presented by our friends at Bitcoin. Well, with all this stuff about occupations and blockades and then the government invoking the Emergencies Act, people are talking about financial controls and bank oversights and powers that government have and how it's going to impact crypto in particular. You see more and more people talking about crypto these days, especially since Finance Minister Freeland announced some of the implications of the Emergencies Act the other day. If you hold crypto or if you're thinking about it and you have questions about what this might mean, the team at Bitcoin Well is ready for it. I've already fielded or thrown a few questions their way. As a matter of fact, myself, you can find them under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. 
So this is the video, and, and you'll be able to hear it if you're listening to this on the podcast. This is you've probably already seen it on your social media channels, or somebody's probably already told you about this. This was shot yesterday uh, at the Coots border crossing. This is south of Lethbridge, Alberta. This is where that blockade has been for I don't know what you'd say the, the better part of two weeks, a little bit more than two weeks, as a matter of fact. RCMP, you remember, came in determined after searching several trailers that there had been a conspiracy. Uh, a conspiracy to commit murder is what the charges from the Crown say. Three people charged there. Others facing charges like mischief and possession of firearms. And essentially, those arrests broke up the demonstration. Those broke up the protests. And some of those folks that had been blocking the borders said we were infiltrated. They said we had nothing to do with this. The body armor and the machete and all the, the weaponry they see, that's not ours. We didn't want anything to do with that. So it felt like a good time to leave. And is everybody prepared to pack up their trailers and get their tractors back onto their farmland? And the RCMP, I would imagine, were preparing to take a breath after what amounted to potentially the friendliest and most curious standoff in Canadian history. This is what unfolded. Take a look. So if you're listening on the podcast, this is RCMP members, one of them having a smoke, which I think is hilarious. It's just like everybody might as well grab a hot dog and act like it's an afternoon at the ballpark. Everyone just crushing darts and hugging and shaking hands. It's like what happens in the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs when one team loses and everybody decides to shake hands and pat each other on the back and confess once the competition is done how much they really like each other. It's an absolutely bizarre scenario. Where people are singing oh canada they're singing the national anthem the rcmp are standing there with them and everybody's wishing each other well as they prepare to walk away now you might say well what's wrong with this why do you have a problem with this jesperson you're upset there wasn't a shootout you're upset that people aren't getting tased bro you're upset that there aren't more people in handcuffs or more people getting pepper sprayed this is an illegal border blockade that lasted more than two weeks and this is a video that will be viewed millions of times, not just in Canada, but around the world. And if you are a person of color in Canada, if you are an indigenous person in Canada, if you have participated in any form of direct action uh, or some sort of organized protest, uh, whether it's for old growth forest or pipeline development or Black Lives Matter or how you believe the police should be funded or defunded or anything else for that matter. And you've seen how RCMP or police services across the country have managed those protests. I'm thinking of the video making the rounds yesterday. You remember the, the, the brief tent city that popped up in the city of Toronto? People were talking about supports for people experiencing homelessness and the like. You remember the police came in with mountain bikes and horses and batons and ripped these tents up from the pegs and sent everybody packing and hurled demonstrators to the ground? And then you see this. It's a little tough to swallow, isn't it? Sarah Hoyle's the editorial producer of this show. I'm curious to know where you land on this one. I know for a lot of people, I, I saw Max Fawcett yesterday, a columnist for the National Observer. You know him. Max just posted that video, and his only comment on it was, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and it seemed to be resonating with a lot of people. It's not funny, but it's one of those videos where I'm just burying my head in my hand, and I'm going, what day did these officers miss of RCMP training at K-Division where they covered how you shouldn't hug illegal occupiers after two weeks in standoff. You shouldn't pat them on the back and shake their hands and look them into the eyes like you're thinking of inviting them to prom. What a weird 
scenario that unfolded in Coots yesterday? Well, it's just lots of doublespeak, right? I mean, we'll, we're seeing them say, you know, we're trying to get them under control. We don't want them here. Go home. And yet they're embracing and giving hugs and shaking hands and singing the national anthem. I mean, I'm maybe I'm just pointing out something that everyone else is seeing. Maybe I'm pointing out the obvious, but that was a sea of white. <laughs> yeah, that was those were a whole bunch of white folk. You, is it is it that simple? And the answer might be yes. Is, is it that simple that that's the difference between this and some of the more tense standoffs with police across the country? Do you think? I don't know, but I just I think it it bears being mentioned that yeah. it's it's kind of it's interesting and also blatant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that there's there's a whole bunch of white folks and nothing is happening. Um, to, you know, stomp out this illegal protest. Yeah. Well, I mean, that one, I guess, now is broken up. You've still got a situation in Ottawa where they went from these are using Ottawa police estimates, had about 4,000 vehicles parked in downtown Ottawa as part of this convoy. If you wrap your mind around that for a second, 4,000 vehicles. That is not a joke. They say now there's about 100. I think last night the National was reporting about 140 vehicles. They say that represents about, uh, you know, or no, pardon me. They said there's 140 people and about 300 plus vehicles, which leads me to believe some vehicles are just down there parked, just left there. People are leaving them there and then they've gone back home maybe to do their jobs or check their email. I don't know what's going on. Well, when uh, you look at that, Ryan, like when you think about, yes, the, the sheer size of those vehicles makes it seem bigger than it is. And oh, the noise sure. that they create, just like it's it, it overwhelms. Yeah. But when you think about like how many people are actually there protesting, the spectacle is huge. The numbers are small. Yeah, I will say if there's more vehicles than people, it's going to make it a lot easier Hoyles to tow them out of there. It's going to make it a lot easier to get them out of there. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm curious to see in Alberta's premier and the majority of Albertans, including me, are probably all relieved that the Alberta government didn't, at least at this point, have to do what it was preparing to do. But there had been rumblings. Uh, people had had credible evidence that the Alberta government had been procuring heavy equipment and people to operate it. And the government was getting ready to go in there and start hauling away these big rigs. Uh, you you got to be careful, I think, about the message this sends as well. Right. We've got a great email here. Uh, one uh, real talker wondering if this has ruined convoys forever. He says there's convoys that have accomplished great things in Canada, too. Um, the only thing, Robert, I'm saving your email for trash talk on Friday because read in a different tone of voice. It's an amazing trash talk. I know you want me to read it today, but I'm not going to do it. We're going to get to Sapria Devetti and Tristan Hopper in just a quick second. Hoyles, I also wanted to quickly check in on this. We'll talk about a woman who's whose HIV was apparently cured by some stem cell. Uh, this is this is a, a mind blowing story involving blood from an umbilical cord. We'll get to that later in the show. But there have been changes for Canadian travelers. And I know this is a big deal. There could be some people live streaming this show on their way to the airport right now. What are the changes? These are for vaccinated travelers, correct? Yes, I think that is bearing like that is the top of the list. Is It's not that things are blown wide open. It's that the, the requirements have been adjusted for fully vaccinated travelers. So folks don't actually need to have that PCR test. Um, it's uh, yeah, it allows them to travel. And they've actually also removed that, you know, warning not to travel unless absolutely necessary. That is now gone if you're fully vaccinated. OK, I know there's a lot of people that have that have got double vaxxed. They got boosted. They go, I've, I've done my thing. I've been keeping to myself and I'm ready to get the hell out of here right now. We're getting some photos <laughs> from real talkers for positive reflection. So that is good news. Um, thanks, Wells, for the update. We'll check back on you in just a little bit. It feels like a pretty perfect time to remind you about our friends at Jet Set Parking, doesn't it? I mean, if you are on your way out of town right now, on your way out of the country, if you're pursuing a hot 
squatter locale. Why not keep some money in your jeans and park your vehicle at Jet Set Parking? You can save money by booking online right now. If you're flying out of Edmonton International Airport, out of EIA, go to jetsetparking.com at least 24 hours ahead of your departure. Use the promo code REALTALK and you'll be able to book airport parking for $7 a day. Unbelievable price, unbelievable offer, less than 50 bucks a week for parking right there at the airport. It's Jet Set Parking. The promo code is REALTALK. They're owned locally and you'll love dealing with them. This is how my family parks when we hit the road. Although it's been a while. We're starting to talk about getting out of here again. It's been too long. I talked to our friends at Park Power just yesterday. CEO Chris wants me to officially now roll out the 2022 promo code. You ready? You've been looking around. Perhaps you got your power bill from your current utilities provider and it just blew your doors off in the worst way right now. It's like double what you're used to seeing. You know, our friends at Park Power want to remind you it's time to get off that, you know, the regulated rate option. It's a, it's like a variable style rate. People are getting burned by it. Why not check out the fixed rate that Park Power offers? If you pay your electricity bills to competitors like Epcor, NMAX, Direct Energy, you got to look at your bills. If you're on the RRO plan, today's the day to switch to Park Power and the promo code 2022-REALTALK gets you 70 bucks off your first power bill from parkpower.ca. All right, let's get to this. There's a ton to talk about. Uh, we're we're going to talk about national news stories, uh, of course, stories involving politics as well. The high-profile Coots border blockade breaking up yesterday. Work still to do in Ottawa as that city's police chief resigns. Uh, Tristan Hopper is a columnist for the National Post, a good friend of the show, as is Sapria Duvetti. You know, Sapria, longtime uh, media. Uh, can I say media darling or is that an insult? I mean, it is a compliment. Can I, I call like you it. media oh, darling? You see that. her on Power and Politics. She writes for the star and, of course, a member of the Real Talk editorial board. It's great to see both of you here. Tristan, let me ask you this first out of the gates. It's, it's a good news story that the Coots border blockade breaks up. It's a good news story that there wasn't gunfire exchange, though I feel like we're setting our standards pretty low there. But a weird video yesterday today with demonstrators hugging police officers what do you make of the whole scenario uh well obviously it's nice when blockades end with everybody hugging and singing songs uh so i, I must say i'm you know i'm not in coots but uh yeah, yeah it is strange because one day we hear uh oh we found this giant pile of firearms and ammunition and you know you have jason kenny saying this was just a you know a symbol of how serious this was and then the second day you see everybody hugging so i you know i don't claim to understand the dynamic that was at play between the blockaders and rcmp but uh yeah generally uh, i would obviously if the winnipeg general strike had ended with hugging i think that would have been better for everyone yeah also i just want to point out sapria's background is way less terrifying than mine i'm just realizing this now sapria's <laughs> sapria's background is very sort of like like executive, but I was actually uh, I, I, I didn't want to do it right out of the gates, but I'm, I'm totally infatuated with your headphones and I'm trying to figure out if those are actually like World War Two era cans or if they're made to look vintage. What is no, that? these are uh, these are a uh, family heirlooms. So these are the my, when my dad was listening to Zeppelin back in the early 70s, yeah. these headphones. Yeah. So you just put a well, that's the thing with the the head, the computer headphones. They they don't I they don't sit in my ears. I've got like, you know, the one percent ears they don't sit in. Anyway, I could go on about headphones, but these uh, 
you know, these these are built like tanks. Somebody's going to see this on YouTube and they're going to they're going to DM you on Twitter and offer you eight hundred dollars for those headphones. Tristan, mm-hmm. I know how this is going to go. Sapria, uh, to get back to business, um, Sarah Hoyle's, you know, speculating that perhaps what we saw yesterday in Coots has something to do with the color of the skin of the demonstrators. She's far from alone on this. That was kind of the general take on Twitter yesterday. But is it but, but are we being too lazy in our assessment or did this have something to do with the color of the skin of those that were occupying the border? No, I mean, I don't think it's a lazy assessment. I think it's just the fact of observing what everyone has seen unfold, you know, before their own eyes. And look, I I, I don't think it's ever good when police go in and are going in with the purpose of like busting skulls or, you know, or trying to use um, disproportionate force. But I think it's very instructive in terms of who in this country gets policed or over policed or not policed at all. And I think for the vast majority of Canadians, we would like to see more of these types of protests or, you know, blockades, whatever you want to call them. And the way we saw the Coots um, blockade sort of end without anybody getting hurt and with people um, walking away, you know, smiling. Um, But that's simply not the case. And it's simply not the case, particularly if you are Indigenous, if you are Black or, you know, this past summer, um, the cities all over Canada really, really saw police, municipal police forces take a very heavy hand um, to folks that were helping defend homeless encampments. So it, it you know, it's either this is either has to do with the color of their skin or this has to do with a bunch of other factors that, you know, lay people like us just aren't seeing. And I think one of those factors may be um, because of, you know, the the arms that were discovered. Um, this may be a, a different group and that may, you know, warrant a, a different sort of tactic here. But it's unfortunate that it. it that sort of restraint only applies every, you know, only applies sparingly. Yeah, I mean, I, I might be stating the obvious here, but but I like ni- none of the three of us and the majority of the people on Twitter commenting this are not trained law enforcement officers. You know, a lot of people wanted to see him come in with bulldozers and just break up this blockade right away. And then you find out that there's a cache of weapons and trailers and the cops are going, yeah, maybe we knew something about this or or maybe they're relationship building or maybe they're doing what they can to avoid conflict or maybe they're taking steps just say from from an observer level on the surface, there is that disproportionate. Uh, and, and again, like you said, Spree, I'm not looking for people to come in and crack skulls. Nobody wants yeah. cops acting like that when it comes to demonstrations. And I would imagine that all three of us would support people's right to protest and defend it vehemently uh, for sure. Let's keep on the line of policing. Tristan, yesterday, Ottawa's police chief, relatively new in the role, and I know the city was, of Ottawa was thrilled to, to, to pry him away from Toronto. Peter Slowly resigns as police chief critics say that his handling of the convoy protest involved berating senior officers, that there wasn't a clear sense of control at the top. Uh, Others are saying, gosh, this is the second black police chief in Canada to resign in the last few years. Really discouraging stuff. Jamil Giovanni tweeting yesterday, Ottawa's first black police chief resigns during the trucker protests in 2020. Toronto's first black police chief resigned during the Black Lives Matter protest. Not a single mayor, city council, provincial, federal position politician has resigned in response to either protest. Uh, Did Ottawa's chief have to resign, Tristan, in your estimation? Uh, I I guess, yeah. If you're the chief of police and, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, convoyers sort of permanently take over the city and people see basically no police response to stop that, I I think that's a good threshold at which you, you know, have to quit. So we can argue that uh, he didn't have proper supports from from higher levels of, of politicians. But, you know, your basic job 
when, you know, hey, you're the police of chief, uh, chief of police. Uh, number one, you can't let the city be taken over by just, you know, anarchist truckers. Uh, number two, it'd be nice to have some community policing and, you know, maybe some street patrols. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, I don't think anybody's surprised that he stepped down. So even so basically, we've seen almost no policing of uh, the Ottawa blockades. Uh, I think one of the only moves made by the Ottawa police in recent days was remember last week when they were like, oh, we're going to you know, crack down and we're going to actually cut off their fuel supply. Obviously, you cut off their fuel supply. Uh, and they kind of gave up that after two, three days. After the truckers started walking around with empty jerry cans, uh, they're like, eh, the hell with this. So they just kind of set up blockades uh, around the edge. So uh yeah i think it's fair to say uh well I, I can't speak for canada but i think you had law enforcement agencies around the world sort of looking at ottawa saying like you know this doesn't happen in our capital cities because it, it it they attempted to do it in other you mentioned bulldozers earlier there there was a freedom convoy that was headed for paris uh the gendarmes just met them at the city limits with literal bulldozers uh the, the french don't screw around with this they have bulldozers that say you know les police on the side uh, to clear blockades so, you know, Washington, Paris, Brussels, these were all places that they tried to have freedom convoys blockaded. Actually, Canberra has a massive protest right now. There's no blockades. There's just a bunch of people in a field somewhere. Uh, but, yeah, if you allow the capital get taken over, um, you probably have to resign. I don't th- Yeah, I don't know many Canadians that would care. I mean, a lot, I'm sure, would look down their noses and cast judgment on a big field party, a big freedom field party. But I'm not sure that would bother people as much well, what they did is they used to have a parliament in australia like ours that was in the middle of town and then they shut that one down and turned it into a daycare or whatever and then they built this big old one on the edge of town just like where we put all our stadiums like you know the ottawa center <laughs> like in canada yeah and then yeah. they put this big field there like you just stand there and yell at the government until you're tired you're and not going to so bother as a result, it, you, they can have massive protests like five hundred thousand people that never ends up screwing with the you know uh, civic life of Canberra. Yeah, the, the condo dwellers don't get upset. Uh, Supriya, right. a day before Chief Slay resigned, um, the assertion was made that that if Ottawa police were going to correctly do their job in breaking up this occupation, they were going to require 1,800 additional officers. For perspective, that's approximately how many officers comprise Edmonton's entire police service. Uh, so, and Edmonton, a city of about 950,000, maybe a million people. So it gives you perspective on the police perspective on this. You're coming to us from Toronto. Uh, you're in Ontario right now. What's, what's the word on the street? I mean, was this inevitable, this resignation? And where does it leave the OPS this is still an active situation. Yeah, it is. And so I think there can be, you know, a few things or at least two things that can be true at once. So the first is that, yeah, the guy at the in charge of the police needed to resign, given the lackluster response uh, by the you know police forces on the ground there in Ottawa. But I think you can't really talk about this without also um, putting in some context when it comes to the fact that, you know, slowly was was brought in to basically um, do something about systemic discrimination and the rampant racism that you see in the forces there in Ottawa and the fact that he is a black man and a lot of what you're hearing from unnamed sources who aren't willing to go you know fully put their name on the record to to journalists is a lot of that like you know angry black man trope that we see and and hear quite quite a bit of and so I, I think that you know you can say that he should have resigned and you know he didn't do his job as um, diligently or as we would as armchair observers liked him to have done. But I don't think you can also remove that from the larger context and the larger conversation about the what seems to be um, just 
basic insubordination that he was uh, being met with on by officers on the ground. And I don't know how you fix that going forward, because even with and I know we're probably going to get to this a little bit later, but even if you do have, you know, now the feds have invoked the, the Emergency Act and there's all these apparent new things that can be done in terms of, you know, freezing finances and the like, it, you still can't compel officers on the ground to do something that they don't really want to do, right? And so none of that really changes whether or not uh, somebody new is in charge or whether there are new federal powers that have been invoked. Basically, you need the folks that are doing the actual policing to want to do the actual policing. And I'm not sure if we have that yet. Well, let's go there right now. And Tristan, I'll start with you. There's 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 debate, which I would uh, assess as very healthy debate on whether or not this is an appropriate scenario uh, for the emergencies act to be invoked uh, for the first time in decades. It gives the government some powers, but not as many as some people believe. Uh, a lot of people are concerned about what this means for finances and government power over finances. It's been a pretty powerful reminder for Canadians. What's your personal opinion, Tristan, on whether or not this is an appropriate time to invoke the emergencies act? Um, I would say no. Uh, actually, you mentioned first time in decades. It's the first time ever. Um, so this this act is on, was only passed in 1988. By Mulroney, right? We had yeah. the War Measures Act. And that was only invoked three times. Uh, two of them were for the World Wars. That's pretty uncontroversial. It was the World War. And then the third time was the uh, 1970 October crisis, which I would argue was actually great because, you know, there was Quebec separatist terrorism. War Measures Act, then there's no more Quebec separatist terrorism. It actually worked quite well. Uh, but in the Emergencies Act, um, I'm, so I'm looking through the order last night of why they, so you know, they invoked the Emergencies Act and then they put it a proclamation. Here's why we did it. Um, and then all the things they're listing are things that the government has been able to do the entire time. Uh, so they mentioned, uh, you know, seizing uh, the, uh, the finances of the truckers. That's sort of the big one. Um, you were always able to do that, but you had to get a court order to do it. So there is a 2000 piece of legislation, the proceeds of, of crime and terrorist financing act or something. Um, you know, obviously we've had no problem, um, you know, seizing uh, funding or, you know, canceling insurance or, or doing all these things we're, they're talking about, but we have to do it with judicial oversight. Um, and then all the other things, and uh, it, it gets into, you know, so we've always been able to arrest the truckers. They've been breaking the law, the criminal code since day one. Um, we've always been able to seize their trucks. We've always been able to call in the military. That's in the National Defense Act. We've always been able to seize their sources of financing. Um, we've always been able to do all these things. So I really think this is just kind of like a lazy government. Uh, you know, one of the big things is they're saying, well, we need the Emergencies Act because tow truck drivers don't want to tow the truckers. And that's for two reasons. Either, either they agree with the truckers or anybody who tows the truckers gets a bunch of, you know, American trolls, you know, yelling at them and shutting down their business. Um, so you got to think you're a government like, oh, we can't get tow truck drivers. Should we just, you know, get a bunch of, you know, maybe we'll get a buy a bunch of tow trucks from Manitoba and ship them in and get people like apparently Alberta was doing it. Or should we invoke the Emergencies Act for the first time? So I think you had some really basic problems that were solvable by a creative government, but they didn't want to do the homework. So, oh, let's just, you know, declare martial law and then we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. So I don't know. It, the, the Emergencies Act very specifically says, oh, don't invoke this legislation unless unless there's, you know, a threat to life or a threat to the integrity of the Canadian state. And the part of the proclamation justifying the Emergencies Act really gets. We might have lost Tristan for a second. That's fine. It was Supriya. It's, it's a good time for us to throw over to you. Sam, does it complicate things if I bring Supriya back on? Is that OK right now? Yeah, we're good. So Supriya, your response. No, Tristan did mention invoking martial law. And I know the federal government's been 
been quick to clarify that that is not indeed the case. But I, I'll take his greater point. Uh, do you agree with his assessment or do you think there's justification for this? Look, I think ultimately the reason why the feds had to act is because the province did not right in Ontario. And so if you had a provincial government that was willing to actually do things, then you wouldn't need the federal government to sort of step in with the emergency act. And, you know, to your point, Ryan, about this not really being martial law. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Everything is still subject to the charter. Um, and, you know, the charter also provides for limits on any of our rights and freedoms, provided that they are, you know, reasonable and uh, justifiable. And I'm using air quotes because that's exactly what the legislation actually says. Now, if you're looking at who is actually responsible for, you know, uh, police oversight, so you have the police services board, that's the province. If you're looking at who's, you know, responsible for the municipality of Ottawa, um, once again, that's the province because they're, you know, municipalities are literally creatures of the province. It's why Doug Ford could kind of come in and unilaterally cut the sides of Toronto City Council all legally um, simply because he could do whatever he wants, basically, when it comes to municipalities uh, since there are creatures of the province. And so I agree that everything that Tristan, you know, talked about in terms of um, the financial powers to be able to, to seize things and to be able to, to freeze up accounts, all of that was already there. This just lowers the bar and makes it a lot easier. It also disincentivizes people who are going to want to continue to donate to this and who are going to want to continue to fund this, right? So I think more than anything, this acts as a giant disincentivization um, measure to get people to stop putting funds up and to give banks the leeway to be able to basically de-risk themselves from from folks that are participating and are actively involved in um, these blockades or, or these protests. So it's, you know, I certainly take a lot of the criticism, um, but I don't know if it's necessarily fair to say that this is just doing something for the sake of doing something, given that something needed to be done, because up until this point, we didn't see anything being done. That's Sapria Devetti. You're listening to Senior Counsel at Enterprise Canada and a visiting researcher at Ryerson University, also hanging out with Tristan Hopper, a columnist uh, with the National Post. We're going to talk about the conservative leader leadership race early stages in just a few minutes. But first, uh, Supriya, your premier, the premier of the province you're living in anyway, uh, Doug Ford yesterday says, hey, listen, in his folksy kind of way, Doug Ford says, listen, folks are, are just they're they're fed up with COVID. Here's what he had to say. We also know that it doesn't matter if you have one shot or 10 shots, you can catch COVID. See, the prime minister has triple shots and I, I know hundreds of people, with three shots that caught COVID. And then there's just hardworking people that just don't believe in it. And, and that's their choice. This is about, again, a democracy and freedoms. <laughs> Tavetti, you said, can we please talk about this? I did. I did say that because this is just Premier Ford peddling anti-vax talking points with this shit. And part of the reason why he and so many others are frustrated with this pandemic, rightfully so, for not being over, is because we fucking dumbed down our rhetoric when it comes to vaccines to the point of absurdity and told people all they needed to do was to get vaccinated and this whole thing would be over, irrespective of the fact that a huge swath of the fucking globe is still unvaccinated and we have multiple animal reservoirs with this virus that can, you know, further have it mutate and spread back to us. So I'm not really sure why anyone anywhere, particularly in positions of authority, um, were, you know, promising that these vaccines would somehow be these force fields that would 100% of 
the time stop any transmission from happening. But vaccines were and continue to be literal life-saving tools. If you are vaccinated, you are much, much less likely to suffer from any of the severe clinical outcomes, including hospitalizations and deaths. So if you're unvaccinated, for example, you are like six times more likely to end up in a hospital as opposed to being, you know, if you were actually vaccinated and roughly 12 times more likely to end up in the ICU. So that's what the, the vaccines actually prevent. And there's also increasing evidence that if you are vaccinated, it dramatically decreases your chances of developing some of these, you know, more worrying uh, longer term uh, issues with COVID, like the long COVID, or if you're a kid, um, the MISC-C, like the multi-inflammatory uh, syndrome that we're seeing in children. So both of those, both of that gets cut with vaccines. And being vaccinated actually does also decrease transmission because despite what Premier Ford and those around him seem to think, you are infectious for a shorter period of time and you actually shed less of the virus while you are infectious while vaccinated. And that both of those help decrease transmission rates. So again, like I get that we're all fucking sick of this pandemic. We all just want to hide under a pile of coats and pretend that this is over. But if you're sick of leading through a pandemic, there's a very easy option for premiers like Ford who are sick of this. Just get the fuck out the way and let mm. somebody else lead. Right. Like we you can't be a libertarian in a pandemic that because we require systemic interventions for this. Like none of us are safe until all of us are safe. Yada, yada. All those like, you know, annoying talking points we heard at the beginning of the pandemic are still true. And what's really worrying about this is that. With some of the subvariants that we're seeing, particularly with Omicron, with so much of the world still being unvaccinated, we're all just basically sitting in this variant simmering soup that's like coming to a boil. Like it's it's it's. Well, I know if it it's came really to a boil, to... it might actually kill it. I mean, that might well, actually. Well, yeah, be a maybe. Good thing, to be well, honest, so yeah. it's just simmering, and we're taking it off and putting it back on to keep it hot. But like yeah. either way, this pandemic's not over. I get and like we. Sorry, I didn't we mean can to pretend st- it's over, but it's not over. I agree with you. And Tristan, so I'm watching that clip. And, and, and earlier he says, you know, folks are sick of the pandemic. And I go, yep. And, and then he goes, and you can be like triple vax. You can have 10 shots and still get it. And I go, yep. And then he goes, and some folks just don't believe it. And that's fine. That's their right. It's a democracy. And I went, well, that's kind of weird for the premier of Canada's most populated province to say, where, where, where do you land on? I mean, it's, can, can we also acknowledge? I'm not saying it's, it's good. Uh, it's just a fact. That's also kind of Doug Ford's style. He's kind of the guy that talks to the folks. You know, he's the guy that pushes the car out of the ditch when it's stuck in the snow. That's kind of Doug Ford. It's the image he portrays. Did he did he cross the line in your mind? I think we got you muted, pal, but we'll get you back. Unmuted. There we there go. We go. Uh, yeah, despite what my background would indicate, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. But uh, <laughs> I mean, this is uh, or what's, a uh, I mean, what I've heard from friends in the medical service. Yeah, I've got a doctor friend. As they're saying, like, you know, going into vaccination, we knew like Canada is one of the most vaccinated countries on Earth. And we largely did that uh, by voluntary vaccination. So uh, we're, we're upwards. I mean, if you look at the actual if you look at the at risk groups, it's basically universal. So, you know, all the people who were dying of COVID, the 80 plus demographic, that's almost 100 percent. And then if you look at the adults, it was never really a, a major risk. This never disease was never really a major risk for the 30 minus unless you had complicating factors. So if you look at the adult population, we're like 90 percent plus. And anybody who knows anything about the way vaccination works is you're never going to get complete universal vaccination unless you're some weirdo country like Iceland or Denmark where everybody is a cousin and they'll think the same. Um, So I think going into this, 
um, anybody could have reasonably thought, yeah, we're only going to get 90% and then we're going to get this 10% who just refused to get vaccinated. And they're all emailing me because I work for the National Post. Uh, you know, some of them are just nuts. Uh, and then some people are like, hey, uh, you know, I've got they actually have pretty good reasons for why they decided not to get vaccinated. Sure. I live in a farm in the middle of Westlock. I never interact with people. You know, I've had serious heart problems, blah, 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 blah. I'm, I have natural immunity because I got it earlier and earlier in the pandemic. I just don't want to get vaccinated. And I don't like the idea. And I mean, people keep portraying these trucker protests as being anti-vaxxers. Uh, I mean, Victoria, I live in the, one of the most vaccinated cities in Canada. I would confidently say that our giant freaking trucker protest was probably mostly triple and a double and a triple a triple dose sure. and it's just people have this inherent resistance uh, to the idea of the government telling them to get a shot so for whatever reason we always knew that 10 percent of people weren't going to get the shot so rather than just saying okay well th that's the situation you know we just have to sort of balance uh the risks of lockdowns and covid restrictions against the risk of covid um we have governments that i think have obsessively particularly at the federal level like obsessing about that 10 percent. how do we make that 10 percent get vaccinated and i think anybody would the basic understanding of medical psychology would say you're not going to do it all you're going to do is just tear society apart um you're, you're going to get a bunch of you know pissed off truckers taking over your capital because you insisted on sort of hammering on those last ones so um i think doug ford is correct in sort of saying it and you've heard this from public health officials people who are much more well-spoken than doug ford um saying uh yeah at a certain point uh, people with the vaccine you know we're, we're seeing diminishing utility of the use of vaccine passports you've heard that from bonnie henry in bc you've heard that from kieran moore in ontario saying one of the main reasons for the vaccine passports was you could have a theater full of people who are vaccinated and wouldn't pass the the virus to each other so if they are still passing it yeah it does reduce the transmissibility a bit but the main reason we put this in isn't really applicable under Omicron. So why are we doing this anymore? Um, can, can I just really quickly get in there? Please. Like the whole point of vaccine mandates wasn't actually to protect us. It was to incentivize people to get fucking vaccinated to begin with. Yeah. And we saw that with multiple, you know, trial balloons that were lobbed. Like I'm thinking of the anti-vax tax that Legault just sort of threw out there. And it resulted in 7,000 more people, you know, within 24 hours registering for first for first doses. And you're also assuming that the 10% that are still unvaccinated all have hom homogeneous reasons for not being vaccinated. But we know that the unvaccinated there is a gradation. There are very reasonable people, as Tristan mentioned, that, you know, for whatever reason, just don't want to do it. Whereas there are people that are like very hardcore and are like yelling at children going into school for wearing a mask. Those people are never going to be reasoned with. We've lost them. We've lost the plot. OK, but there are still people within that 10 percent that can be incentivized to, to continue to be vaccinated. And we need as many vaccinated people as possible um, because it does protect the larger group. That's why we have the whole concept of herd immunity to begin with. Yeah, um, this is uh, this conversation go for three hours. I'm so grateful that the two of you have joined us. I don't want to we'll talk again, uh, but I don't want to leave without a quick hit, a quick observation on the early stage of Aaron O'Toole's ousting as conservative leader. Um, Tristan, I think it's fair to say this is I mean, it's way too early to start talking like this. But but obviously, Pierre Polyev has declared his intent, he says, to to be prime minister. He'll have to start with leader of the conservatives and, and then he'll have to go from there. Uh, but certainly a, a formidable opponent 
to others who would consider a leadership run. Uh, I see some progressives, uh, progressive conservatives, if you will, saying Jean may be the only hope to save this party. <laughs> and other people are just going back to the well, back to the well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Peter McKay as well. So yeah, non-zero chance I could just dredge up Joe Clark uh, at this point, which he's actually, he's only 82. Joe Biden's 79. So he's actually young. Oh my God. He's exactly Nancy Pelosi's age. So we wow. don't, fortunately, we don't run a gerontocracy uh, in this country. But uh, also that photo you showed earlier of Aaron O'Toole looking sad. We were yeah. fighting at the National Post about who would be able to use that on their story because it's it's this it's the you wanted that sad you, photo. you wanted that photo yeah because we were like as soon as he got ousted it's like well we got to run that photo and it's like <laughs> i, I want to run that photo so we, we have a few different angles and we sort of fought over who was gonna run so you probably you've all seen that photo yeah about. uh anyway wh- what was i going with this well, i don't know i don't think uh aaron O'Toole's leadership was sustainable because when you hear conservatives talk they're like oh yeah he didn't actually say anything conservative ever uh so you know that was kind of frustrating to us every once in a while so i i think eventually he was going to be kicked out. It just happened to be the trucker protest, which sort of, it really showed a divide between, you know, the actual conservative parts of the party and the Aaron O'Toole parts uh, that sort of uh, drove him out. So uh, yeah, they've tried two leaders uh, who sort of did the Canadian thing, like where, you know, pretend you're not a conservative and then maybe people will hate the liberals enough to vote for you. And that didn't work. So I, I think it's, you know, but hang on a second. Let me ask you, so so you're, you're, and and you know, Tristan, that I respect your perspective, but you're, so you're saying here, they, they, they tried Aaron O'Toole, but now they're going to go to a real conservative. So even in your assessment, Aaron O'Toole doesn't pass the test uh, for real conservative. And, and if that is the case, and it's a sincere question from me to you, then, then how in the hell is this party going to get enough votes in the big cities by continuing to close down the size of their club on who can qualify to support them? I mean, how do you achieve government there? Don't you become perpetual opposition if you, if you start making the tent smaller and smaller and smaller? So here's uh, my, my thinking has changed uh, a bit on this and it's, it's since moving back to Victoria. So I'm in the most left-wing city. Uh, in the entire country. We voted NDP since, you know, we, I think we're the, one of the only places that actually voted in a literal communist back in the day, back in the days when communists were banned and we had to, anyway, it's very left-wing here. Uh, at, as everybody's National Post writer friend, every once in a while, whenever some someone has this dark right-wing thought, they call me to, you know, just to confess and purge it and then they can go back to their normal life. Sure. And whenever those calls happen, it's always issues that Aaron O'Toole's conservatives didn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. Uh, why is milk so expensive? Uh, you know, why can't we fire bad teachers? Yada, yada, yada. There's, there's a whole list of them. And uh, these are all things that Aaron O'Toole did not want to touch. So I think the idea is, uh, rather than just being a blue version of the liberals, uh, you know, why don't we create a party that sort of, you know, makes new conservatives? So I don't know if it's going to work, but I can sort of see the reasoning of um, there's a bunch of people who are sort of fed up with the status quo and they want a different vision. Um, so you could, I mean, you have seen this happen. Uh, it's it certainly, that's why Thatcher was prime minister of the UK forever. Uh, that's why you had a bunch of liberals voting for Reagan is because they had these sort of dark right-wing thoughts. F- suddenly there was a, a right-wing leader who sort of, you know, so I think the idea is you bring in Pierre Polyevre and you have a bunch of people who normally vote liberal and they're like, I'm going to vote Pierre for Pierre Polyevre because of this thing. Um, and then I'll go way back. To we'll, we'll talk about this and we'll break this down, especially once we have more leadership uh, contenders to talk about. We can start ranking them and speculating. But Supriya, in closing is uh, and this again is, is murky crystal ball type prediction here. But but does a Pierre Polyev led conservative party fare better or worse than 
an O'Toole-led conservative party uh, against the liberals in the next federal election. And who knows who will be leading the liberals, by the way. That's an entirely different conversation. I think they're more competitive in uh, French-speaking areas. I think Pierre is, is you know, very well-spoken in, in both official languages. I think he would hold himself up a lot better in, in debates in, in French than and do media interviews in, in French than, than, than Aaron did. Um, but I just think the general issue for the Conservatives going forward is they need to decide whether they want to be a grown-up party or whether they want to be the shitposting party, right? That's just all about dunking on libs. And right now with Pierre, a quick cursory view of any of his social media postings would suggest that they still want to be that shit posting party. So it's like, okay, fine. But then you're going to need to break into, you know, the suburban soccer mom crew um, that I see regularly at the park with my own kid um, and try and get those people to vote for you. And I don't know how Pierre does that, given that if they go with him as leader, they're basically like a farm team version of the GOP. Oh, all right. Well, listen, uh, the two of you deliver as you do every single time. It's a pleasure to see both of your faces. Friends, read everything that Tristan Hopper writes in the National Post and give him a follow on Twitter at Tristan Hopper. Sapria Devetti. Of course, you can catch her all the time on CBC's Power and Politics and right here on Real Talk. Have a great day to the both of you. Appreciate this. All right. You can let me know what you think about what you've just heard. I mean, we covered a ton of ground with those two. Uh, talk at ryanjesperson.com is, is where you can send us an email anytime. Uh, who is this? I think it was Luke on here said, hang on, the price of milk is a dark right wing thought. What the? But here's the thing. So you talk about milk in Canada. You start talking about supply management and you start talking about supply management. And you start talking about government invention and uh, intervention in markets. And once you start talking about that, then it starts opening up big, huge cans of worms. And uh, I mean, there was a reason why Andrew Scheer famously took that one liter box of milk and just guzzled it from the lectern, right? Like some sort of an initiation routine for a freshman uh, during frosh week in their first year of university. There was a reason there. And a lot of people will say, I mean, you look at how Andrew Scheer uh, versus Maxime Bernier treated big milk. And a lot of people will say that Big Dairy influenced that leadership race for the conservatives. I'm going to start getting texts from all of my dairy farmer cousins right now when they hear this. As soon as they hear this, if they're live streaming in the tractors right now, they're not going to be on the tractors right now, but they might be in the barns. And if they're live streaming us on Mixler, I, I suspect, Sam, we're going to start seeing text messages from the Jesperson dairy farmers in just a couple of minutes. If you're looking for Alberta dairy, uh Look no further than the 16 Friesen Brothers locations across the province for more than 65 years. They've been Alberta-grown, Alberta-owned. You know, you're a couple of weeks away from the first of the month, which means 15% off at every Friesen Brothers. Any purchase over $75, that's the day that our family goes and we do our big grocery shop for the month on the first of the month. In the meantime, if you're looking to pick something up, fresh Alberta ingredients for making dinner at home or maybe something out of their kitchen, hot and ready to go, you bring it home. Braised beef short rib is my personal recommendation. Maybe some of their roasted root vegetables. What you do is you put it on a plate in the kitchen when nobody else is looking, and then you present it as though you made it happen. That's all thanks to our friends at Friesen Brothers at Friesen.com. Also, speaking of dairy, Sam, we couldn't have even planned this any better, could we? Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you that, yeah, they do dairy. They do the blizzards. There was apparently a huge, huge demand for the Red Velvet Blizzard Valentine's Day cake. Real talkers were representing in a big way. 
but Mark and Michael and Michelle at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want me to let you know about their new burger menu that's out. They've got some brand new burgers in the spotlight, including the Bacon 2 Cheese Deluxe Signature Stack Burger. Uh, my rules of operation, if I have to take a breath in the middle of saying what the burger is called, the mouthful is probably worth your time. There's also their Flamethrower Signature Stack Burger, the Loaded Steakhouse Signature Burger, and their famous Mushroom Cheeseburger, the Signature Stacker at the Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. And if this is the time of year where you're looking to better yourself, you're looking to deepen your understanding of a certain subject matter, or maybe you're ready for a new opportunity, the job that you've been showing up for dutifully for the past few years just isn't floating your boat anymore. You don't have that sort of sense of exuberance or excitement or inspiration, and you're looking to reinvent your essence. Why not start at Athabasca University? It's Canada's online university with world-class accredited online programs and courses. The big thing here with Athabasca U, number one, in my mind, on any list is the flexibility to learn at your own pace. You need to take a week off. You're going to get away somewhere. You're going to the back country. You can't wait to get camping in the spring. Whatever it is, they're not going to require you to be chiming in on Athabasca U. They know that when you've got the time, you're going to put the time in. And when you're ready to wrap up your studies, that's when they'll wrap up. You don't get flexibility like that at other post-secondaries. That's why Athabasca University is the choice of so many Canadians at AthabascaU.ca. Well, we've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, me in particular, uh, I've been experimenting with this idea of a dry February, although it became a dry-ish February about a week in. Uh, for a lot of folks, it's a more significant commitment. And of course, there are various reasons why somebody might choose the sober life, so to speak. We wanted to talk about going dry for maybe a specified period of time or for good. We wanted to talk about the health benefits, physical, mental, and otherwise, and everything else that goes along with it. And I'm grateful that these three panelists have agreed to join us. Mitzi Line is a hairdresser based out of our home city, out of Edmonton. She worked primarily in bars for many years until she switched to hairdressing about a decade ago. Five years into her career, she got sober. Michael Walsh is a substance use and addiction specialist. He works as a recovery coach, an interventionist, a family coach, a consultant, and an educator. And Michael's joining us out of beautiful Victoria, British Columbia, just like Tristan just did. And Dr. Bryce Barker is joining us from the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction, uh, holds a degree in psychology from the University of Guelph, and a PhD in human kinetics from the University of Ottawa. I want to encourage the three of you to feel free to jump in, feel free to contribute to the comments of another panelist. You don't have to wait for me to tap you on the shoulder. Let's treat this like we're, we're all out for coffee or lemonade or whatever it is that you're drinking on a daily basis. And let's get into the truth. Mitzi, you and I have known each other for at least 10 years. And when I decided that we wanted to have this conversation on sobriety or going dry, I thought, gosh, you know, we've been following your journey. You've been sharing so much publicly over the years. I remember when you were excited about one month sober, six months sober. And now it just seems here's your annual update five years in. What got the ball rolling for you and your personal journey? Um, well, as you mentioned before, I was in the bar industry for a really long time, and obviously there's a lot of liquor involved there, and it just sort of was normal to go out and party every weekend and over-consume and then wake up and have that cycle of I'm hungover, I probably said something stupid last night, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I kind of just finally had enough, you know, I'd sort of carried that lifestyle over into my new job. I wasn't drinking at work or anything, but I was still excessively drinking quite a few nights during the week. And one morning I just kind of woke up and had enough. Um, it wasn't exactly that simple. However, I'd had many of those mornings and I decided to take a break as many people do sort of near the new year. And that break ended up being five years. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously something a, worked, yeah, right? I'm looking it forward to it. Well, three months. So you set a goal for three right. months and then, and then, yeah. so you get there, I would imagine you probably didn't have to wait for the eve of the end of the third month. At what point into it did you say, I think this might be the rest of my life? Well, you know, <laughs> that kind of happens still every year or so. Ah. I never intended for it to be a permanent decision at the time. I knew three months was probably a good starting point. I'd done sober February. I'd done sober January. And it was never really long enough to see a lasting effect. And I really wanted to see what would happen if I truly gave it up for a decent amount of time. And sort of as that three months mark was nearing, I had already seen some really positive changes in my life. It was surprising how quick I started to look better, feel better, think clearer. And I just wanted to sort of continue that on. And then six months hit and I thought, well, this is still going so great. Why would I go back to something that hasn't really brought a lot of positivity to my life? Hmm. Michael, when you when you I mean, there's obviously a, a whole bunch of people that are gonna, that are going to, you know, give dry February a go. And some of them are going to swear off booze entirely for the month. Some of them will keep it to city limits or weekends. And, and some people will take what was a 28 day commitment and probably change the rest of their lives. So what's your take on the value of something like dry February? And, and when does somebody know that it might be a good idea for them to give it a go? Um, that's a great question. Thanks for having me this morning. I think um, any opportunity to look at one's use of alcohol or other substances uh, can be done in any format, whether it's a dry January or February. Um, I think if one is willing to, to take a look at that, there's potentially a reason uh, that they're doing so. And that could be uh, health factors, could be relationships, could be um, just how their alcohol use is affecting their daily life, whether it's how they show up for their kids or their loved ones, their, uh, their employer. And yeah, I think any opportunity to take a look at it again, whether it's dry January or February, there's lots of people that come my way that, uh, for various reasons are wanting to explore their relationship to the use of alcohol and create change around that. Hmm. Dr. Barker, you know, there's there's something in common with the bios, the biography that, that you and Michael supplied. And it's been a subtle change in language. And I've noticed it. Nobody says substance abuse anymore. People say substance use. Uh, what's the significance of that? Well, thanks for that, Ryan. Yeah, I think as we just just like every other area of life, language evolves and sometimes the connotation of the way we talk about substance use um, can be stigmatizing. So when we say abuse or, or we use words like addict, um, again, it doesn't necessarily help people who are, are working through a substance use disorder. And, and it could feel like it's, it's singling them out in negative ways when, when in the end this is a, a chronic condition that people are working through and we should be doing our best to try to make sure that they, at least the language we use doesn't make it worse. 
Mitzi, I don't know about you uh, and, and what your early adjustment was like, but even in 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 doing something like Dry February myself, uh, you know, you sit here and and you realize, quite frankly, how frequently alcohol is as a matter of fact on a daily basis it's part of a routine whether that's a business lunch where somebody says "Ah, should we get a glass of wine or maybe it's a beer after hockey or maybe it's a beer while you're working in the garage or an old-fashioned as you wind down at the end of the night you're sitting there going i'm consuming alcohol not 30 drinks but i'm consuming alcohol almost every day of the week and it's woven in to the fabric of the routine and it 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 actually requires a, a bit of a significant adjustment now i'm talking about my personal experience everybody might be different how did you deal with those challenges early on? Did it get easier? And are you still sitting there like you're out with your girlfriends for lunch and, and, and they order a bottle of wine? Are you still going, eh, or is it not even cross your mind anymore? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Talking about language, I think, is actually really important. I had a really hard time in the beginning with the term alcoholic. I had a lot of people, well, why are you quitting? Are you an alcoholic? And I never identified as an alcoholic, but I've always said I definitely abused alcohol. And you start to really wake up and see, man, like every day, practically, there's a reason to have a drink. You know, we use it to celebrate. We use it to mourn. We use it if we've had a bad day. There's this whole culture really uh, promoting women to drink, actually. You know, the whole wine o'clock, rosé all day. All of these things are being thrown at you constantly. And it is really difficult sometimes to separate it all. Um, for me personally, like I'm at a point now I'm five years in, you know, people are opening drinks around me. I don't even think about it anymore. And I'm really lucky for that. You know, I just went to Mexico with friends and it's Mexico. Everyone's drinking tequila, all these things. For me, it's not even an issue anymore. And I feel really lucky for that. But I do like to have something in my hand. It definitely uh, still is a social thing for me to go out with people having drinks however for me the drink is soda water or soda with lime or something it doesn't have to be liquor based but uh, you know to your point when you start really recognizing how many drinks you're having we've all been to the doctor for our checkup when they ask how much you drink and everyone muddles that word you know it's like okay well i have six drinks a week and the doctor kind of gives you a look well you're supposed to only have two and then you realize well i'm actually having 12 to 20 drinks a week but i didn't want to tell my doctor so there is still a really big stigma around it yeah well yeah there's people that are going to be listening to this are going 12 to 20 a week (laughs) 12 to 20 on saturday uh michael you i mean you've got lived experience in all this and and i would imagine that that credibility is important i mean your work as an interventionist that is i mean so much so that they've made reality tv shows about it and they're some of the most powerful uh bits of film that anybody will see when when loved ones of a person people that love someone dearly take what i think is a pretty significant step um, to, and you're not going to appreciate the word, but let me cut to the chase to accost them or to surprise them, but to sit them down and say, we all believe that you have a real problem. Uh, the average person might get pretty defensive in a scenario like that. Does your lived experience help you open a door to start that difficult conversation? Absolutely. And I will say that we do not do surprise interventions. Ah. We do what's called invitational it's a bit of a different twist. There's quite a lead up to actually inviting the person to participate in a family meeting. So it actually breaks down a lot of barriers, uh, the way that we, we approach an intervention. But yes, my lived experience for sure plays a role in, I believe, and not just myself, but there's, um, there's a bunch of other people that work with me. And all of us have various uh, sort of 
um, concepts of lived experience, whether it's through alcohol or drug use, and also various approaches to how we've changed that part of our lives. So yes, absolutely. I feel like people want to know and like to know that, uh, that we have lived experience, both with the use of substances and also recovery, and that we're all coming from a different perspective. Like Mitzi, she sort of chose a, a certain approach that worked for her. And like all the people that we work with, we customize a fit that uh, fits with that individual. So lived experience is very important to the people that we work with. Dr. Uh, Dr. Barker, let, let's I mean, take a look at some of these stats. These are remarkable uh, alcohol sales during the course of the pandemic. I want to get an interesting angle on this because I can tell you, I mean, my alcohol consumption went up uh, during the pandemic. I've got no problem admitting that I'm, I'm one of those people that I'm, I'm the I'm the classic standard Canadian. I started exercising less. I started drinking and eating more and I'm up 15 pounds. That's my pandemic experience. People will write in and say, Ryan, don't worry. I'm not worried about it. And I'm doing something about it. And people have their own <laughs> definitions of health. I'm not happy about it though but i can tell you i get why people started drinking more i get it alcohol sales across canada through the course of the pandemic increased by four percent let's take a look at our home province we're coming to you from alberta alberta's alcohol sales 42 percent higher than the national average through the course of this pandemic and get this i mean taking a look at some of the data especially among adults in their 30s young adults increased alcohol use hospitalization numbers are up it's estimated from the canadian institute for health information about 4300 additional hospital stays for chronic medical conditions related to alcohol like alcohol-induced pancreatitis or liver disease through the first 16 months of the pandemic in Canada. That's not including an additional 8,000 hospitalizations for mental and behavioral disorders because of alcohol use. The age group seeing the largest surge is 30 to 39. Is that a trend that we need to be concerned about? Is this a blip on the radar? Is this next generation treating alcohol differently? I'm also seeing numbers that say some millennials have no use for alcohol whatsoever. Well, you said a lot there, but, you know, what I would really want to maybe comment on is that, yeah, during the pandemic, a lot of people have increased their drinking. So there are different sources of information and the estimates are about one fifth. So one in five people to about one in three people increasing their drinking during the pandemic. So definitely not alone there. Um, the idea that you know, things that are driving it are stress and loneliness and people are dealing with job losses, that kind of thing. Um, there's been a small group that's actually decreased their drinking. And that has a lot to do with, with not having those, those social settings to drink um, the bars that uh, Mitzi would have worked at in the past. Um, you know, those, when those opportunities aren't there, people are drinking less. And, and maybe one thing I would say while I have the mic is just, you know, for something like a, a dry February, um, I know that was part of the conversation. It's, it's really important to say that if, if someone knows they have like a moderate or severe alcohol use disorder, they're, they're pretty sure they should talk to a healthcare provider, talk to um, someone like Michael, talk to a doctor, just because, you know, taking care of that on your own, trying to abstain on your own can be very dangerous. So it's really important that we make that distinction. So, you know, if you drink occasionally or you know, consider yourself a social drinker, maybe this makes sense a month off and maybe that leads to some good changes. But if you're worried about, you know, what might happen when you do stop, it's definitely a good idea to talk to a healthcare provider. Doctor, can I ask you to elaborate on that a little bit? Like what sort of a danger sure. might, might somebody incur, might somebody face? 
Well, the withdrawal symptoms of, of alcohol, it's actually one of very few substances that the withdrawal can actually kill you. So it needs to be medically supervised. Um, sometimes there's, there's tapering, sometimes there's medications that are used in that acute withdrawal period. So it's very important to work with a healthcare provider to, to go through that. Again, we're talking about um, people who are more on the, the spectrum of a severe alcohol use disorder, um, not someone who you were mentioning before. Maybe they have 10 or 15 drinks a week. Uh, we're obviously talking about a very different amount of drinks and, and daily use. I think, mo- I think most people know the symptoms uh, of, of that or, or, or can recognize. I mean, there's denial. We, we understand isn't denial like isn't that, that kind of the first step you got to get over, I think, in, 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 in uh, that whole process. Uh, and I'm not the expert. Don't listen to me. But I think most people know that if you're hiding your drinking, right, if you're drinking at work, if you're drinking around kids, if you're drinking behind the wheel. I mean, there are things where, you know, right, Michael, that, you, you know, deep down inside, it's become a problem. Do most people know? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, people are reaching out to me for a reason. So yes, something is going on. And to what degree it really varies for every person, like, uh, like Bryce said, uh, even you know, with regard to overuse of alcohol and managing the withdrawal symptoms, it's the same with, with how people are using alcohol and how it's affecting their lives. We have very high functioning sort of type A clients, uh, very busy people where their life is not crumbling, but they see that it could get to a point where alcohol use could really impact their their work, their health, their relationships. Um, I, I think that a lot of people uh, see changing this part of their life as uh, quite a hurdle, right? There's It's not just as easy as saying, you know what, I'm going to stop this behavior. Um, the easy part is actually stopping or changing the behavior. The hard part is how do we, how does one recreate their life around maintaining that if that's the goal uh, long term, like like Mitzi stopped for a period of time. And then she's like, wow, you know what, this is actually pretty cool. And my yeah. life is better. And I'm, you know, got lots of money in the bank. And I showing up differently for my kids and my family. And she wanted to extend that. And, and that happens a lot with people that come our way. Could I also, of course. I just wanted to add like those stats that you brought up, I think were very important. And certainly during the pandemic, uh, we've seen, yeah, an increase in people acknowledging that pandemic drinking uh, like from working from home, I have heard people starting drinking earlier in the day because they are not in their office. And I also just want to say that during this pandemic, the amplification, like perhaps this show, this segment, uh, has been incredible around the world. Like the talk about uh, drinking and the culture drinking and changing that culture has become way more accepting and less stigmatizing, which is amazing. Like there's so many great people around the world that are, that are talking about drinking, stopping drinking or changing that part of their lives and uh, it being received with acceptance and, and, and no judgment. So I just want to add that, that although drinking has increased in a lot of countries around the world, also stopping drinking or changing that part of one's life has actually happened quite a lot. Doctor, let me ask you this question quickly before we wrap. Jillian says, so hang on a second. Is a glass of wine a day no longer okay? I thought that was healthy. How, do you, how can you tell when it's healthy or when it's not? And that question is for me. Um, so I just want to make sure before I answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think uh, coming into this conversation, there are a few things I wanted to make sure I got across. It's really important to say that 
alcohol causes cancer. Um, you know, it's not something we talk about often enough. Um, so for a female who, who made that comment, it, you know, the increase is breast cancer is, is definitely an increase. Um, cancers of the digestive tract. So a, a number of different cancers are increased by alcohol use and it, it goes up pretty linearly. So at low levels and it continues to go up. So having one a day over your lifetime, you're increasing your chances of getting a number of different types of cancer. So, you know, and Drive February put out by the Canadian Cancer Society, um, you know, they have their own guideline around reducing your risk of cancer. And it is one or less a day um, with, with days off or two or less a day for males with days off. So, you know, the, the extent to which people can take this this February, um, a month off, and then leverage that to think about having lower risk amounts. You know, I think that that if I had any quibbles about, you know, this kind of dry month, it's that it doesn't necessarily help you for, you know, Ryan, you mentioned a lot of situations where people are, are wanting to give you alcohol and maybe you're wanting to drink it. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily help you to say, you know, I've had one, I'm great. You know, I've had two. I'm great. That's a different skill set than saying I'm not going to drink at all. Mm. You know, so that's it. It's sometimes you know when we think about these dry months, they're great, but maybe setting yourself up for a challenge to just have two per week for a few months or three per week for a few months. Even that might be harder than just taking months off in some cases. So yeah. again, it, just throwing some ideas. At I have to say, for me, it was harder. I'm an all or nothing person. I can't do the to, you know, people always ask me, would you start drinking again? And sure, every now and then I'm like, oh, that glass of wine looks great. Or, you know, but I feel like very quickly, one would turn to two, two would turn to three, three would turn. I just know that about myself. It's the self-awareness that I have to have to stay sober long-term. Yeah, that's Betsy, like, for me. I don't know if this is an inappropriate question. If I hadn't known you for 10 years, no. I might not ask it. But, no, but you know, you, yeah, like you're describing your friends down in Mexico and there you are with them. And, and I know having shown up, you know, I, I've worked a lot of late nights as an event host and showing up sober to an event late at night with a bunch of your wasted friends yeah. is sometimes a little bit. Well, enlightening, not always in the best way. And uh, I'm just curious, yeah. now, like, do you, can I ask a straight question? Do you mind getting yeah, tipsy? I mean, do, you, do, do, do you miss getting tipsy a little bit? Like, for you, sure, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, there's times. I mean, this is the thing, and this is the hard truth for a lot of people. You know, during this pandemic, people were drinking more to cope. We have a problem with natural, like healthy coping mechanisms is a huge deal. I mean, that's been a thing so yeah i miss getting wasted but i miss getting wasted to check out and i can't check out anymore that's not a luxury i have and getting sober the first couple of years was challenging because all of a sudden i had to address my feelings i started seeing a therapist i mean people ask me all the time how i got sober i get messages constantly because i am so open i'm not a doctor i'm not a healthcare professional i too had to deal with my shit pardon my language but it's the truth you know, getting sober will cause you to face things, but it's important to face them. I'm living a much better life. And truly, yeah, I mean, I see my friends get drunk. They're having fun. I see them overconsume. I always joke. I turn into a pumpkin at midnight. I got to go because at midnight, nothing good is happening past midnight. People yeah. are incoherent and idiots and I don't want to be there. But I can hang with the best of them. You know, I can still have a good time. But that's because over these five years, I've had to learn how to have a good time without it. No longer can I use it for social situations. No longer can I use it to get out on the dance floor and mask the fact that I am not a good dancer. 
I've just learned to do it all now and not care. Uh, Michael, we'll give last word to you because I, I just saw your body language. Something Mitzi said resonated with you there. She said, you know, when you stop drinking, you're going to have to start dealing with your shit. And I saw you nodding your head there. Um, I guess that's another thing. I mean, like like Bryce was talking about, you got to be prepared to deal with some of the physical consequences of alcohol withdrawal in some circumstances. Uh, there's going to be other implications as well. Let's wrap with your observation on that. Absolutely. I, I, I went to rehab a couple times and I had some some complicating underlying factors that uh, I believe sort of brought me to to the sort of the end of my career of the use of substances. So, uh, yeah, there was I, I there was a lot of things I didn't know how to do in my life. I didn't know how to be emotional. I didn't know how to be in a relationship. Um, so I really had to kind of relearn a whole bunch of my life or even learn new parts of it that I hadn't actually known before. And so for myself, I did have to go into a rehab center a, a couple times and work with therapists and support groups and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, when you're not masking, as, as Mitzi said, when you're not uh, sort of drinking to cope and, and masking those underlying feelings, uh, when you're not drinking or using substances, they certainly rise to the top. And then you have to deal with those, whether you're doing it, sitting with them on your own, or you're working with a professional. Um, it's sometimes not just as easy as, as stopping the drinking, but I can tell you for me personally, it is worth it Hmm. for my particular situation. So, Yes, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, That's Michael Walsh, uh, a substance use and addiction specialist, a recovery coach as well. You can learn more about what he does based out of Victoria, B.C. at michaelwalsh.com. Dr. Bryce Barker has joined us uh, out of the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction. You can find them at ccsa.ca. And my good friend Mitzi Line joining us as well, sharing her personal story. I always appreciate that. People need to hear from people that have walked miles in the boots. You know what I mean? And I'm so grateful yeah. for the three of your perspective. Thanks for joining us on this, friends. Thank you Thanks so much, Ryan. Yeah, Thank you, you. We wanted to have this conversation. I know that it'll it'll land with different people differently. Uh, I've been dropping in on the live chat and seeing where, where people are coming from. And, and I really appreciate this. Like BV says, not to mention alcohol consumption is a lot more socially acceptable, uh, constantly fetishized, fetishized. Don't use that. Yeah, yeah. In, in, uh, invoking a fetish. Yeah, fetishized by media uh bv says imagine living in a universe where they had commercials for heroin in the same manner as they do for alexander keith's yeah does anybody drink alexander keith's anymore i don't think so support your local microbrewer um you know another one you or you know you're talking about the numbers the the numbers are always interesting right you, you like you know what qualifies as a heavy drinker sam i don't know if you've been in there with your doctor i've had that conversation with my doctor before He's like, what's, what's your alcohol consumption look like? And you say it. He's like, is, is that a day or a week? Yeah. Or? Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be an awkward like, conversation. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like, I mean, the parts of that that I could sort of relate to is the, you know, the, the evening wind down drink. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like I'm a big fan of the, you know, evening glass of wine, oftentimes while I'm putting the next day's show together. It's just sort yeah. of a staple in my life. And it's something that I don't really think about and probably should a lot more. Yeah. With with Carrie expecting, with my wife expecting, we're doing June. 
she's obviously off the booze. And, uh, you know, what, what, what I've noticed that she's done is she'll take like we get fun drinks like, you know, the, the San Pellegrinos with like a flavor infusion or like a coconut water, something like that. But she'll still drink it out of a wine glass. And I think that's a big part of it. You talk to people that have quit smoking. A lot of times they'll drive around with like a pen between their fingers, you know, resting on the stick shift because they just they, they they're used to having something in their hands. And a big part of the smoking was the habit of it. Not even necessarily the delivery of the nicotine. Yeah, I've been to a lot of events before where I had to be like the sober, responsible person there. And my usual move is I'll I'll have one beer, I'll make sure it's in a bottle, and then I'll just keep refilling that bottle with water. So there's Smart always a drink man. in my hand. Smart so man. nobody tries to force another drink on me because they see I've got this beer bottle on the go. Yeah, interesting comment from Kim who says, I can have one drink. I can have one bit of chocolate. Contrary to what Mark Messier might argue, Kim says, I can have just one chip. Ah. Uh, can you have just one Lay's, Kim? She says, my husband cannot, though. People are definitely not the same. Totally true. Uh, one of my best friends in the world, his dad quit smoking like 40 years ago, probably 45 years ago. And as much as he, he is, he'll see us, you know, with cigars and we've offered him one on a couple of occasions, he'll say, I can't, boys. Like, it's been 45 years since his last cigarette. But if, if he tries to smoke a cigar, it's all going to go to hell. And he knows that. And so he won't do it. I can respect that for sure. Uh, we still have to go to the mountains today. And Sarah Hoyles is going to talk to us about this this woman who appears to have been cured uh, of HIV. That's a story that we have to follow. But first, let me just remind you of how proud I am to be dealing with the teams at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. I've told you right now, and I can talk about it all day long. Just ask Sam. I can talk about the Ram 1500 Crew Cab Longhorn all day long long and and the fun part about it is i've got different people coming up to me to to check it out like typically i'm driving that grand cherokee around and you know the family folks the soccer moms the guys at hockey come up and go what about this grand cherokee there i'm driving in there okay that's cool now i got guys coming up with this this crew cab ram being like okay whole different set of questions and i'm loving it it's opened up a lot of doors and we're excited to get it out this summer camping and pulling the boat and everything else you're not going to find a better selection of canada's most popular truck the ram 1500 than you will at saint albert and sherwood dodge you can browse their inventory by using the handy search tools online uh you can find them under the sponsors tab on our website or of course you can go see them in person at sherwood and saint albert dodge Our friends at Local Waste are getting set for another edition of Trash Talk coming up in less than 48 hours from now on the show. They're proud to present it. Your chance to blow off a little steam in an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Local Waste has been family owned for a quarter century and they are growing big time. That's across Alberta and Saskatchewan. New communities coming on every couple of months it seems. You can contact them today for a free quote, whether it's a one-time deal, maybe you're doing a home renovation, you need a big bin, or maybe you're a business owner and you're looking for a better relationship with the company that's doing your waste and recycling collection. Find them online today at localwaste.ca. Mike and his team at Eden Landscaping, set to go. This is the time of year that they're starting to pull those real property reports. They're starting to map out the backyard designs. And most importantly, with regards to getting projects done on time, this is the time of year they're ordering the materials to build your new gazebo or your deck, the stonework installation, maybe the water feature. Where is a family talking about an outdoor pizza kitchen? It seems like more and more people are doing that. Mike and his team do it. You can check out all their work at landscapeedmonton.ca. And speaking of energy, speaking of summer, speaking of home improvements, 
Are you ready to go solar? If you are, if your family is taking a look at your utility bills right now and saying, gosh, I know that a lot of people talk about cost barriers to solar. At least they used to. Well, I wonder if that cost could be decreased if we were generating some of our own energy, let alone selling it back to the grid. If you want a free solar quote right now, check this out. This will pop up at kubienergy.ca. You click the button, you get your free appraisal. You can learn more about their products and services. And remember that across Alberta and British Columbia, Kubi Energy's installers are Tesla certified, which means you're getting the job done right the first time. You can be confident of that. Sarah Hoyles, the editorial producer of this show, uh, part of her job means that she's keeping an eye on 15 or 20 stories at a time, uh, doing a great job at it. Hoyles, we always leave stuff on the table, but this one, there's no way we're wrapping the show today without talking about this story about, about a, a cure. Essentially, it appears or at least an amazing story in the context of HIV and AIDS. What's going on here? So it's the first woman that has been reportedly cured of HIV and they've done so using stem cell transplant. And the stem cell is coming from a person that actually has resistance, natural resistance to the virus that causes AIDS. It's another first in that they're using an umbilical cord, um, umbilical cord blood for this stem cell transplant. So this, uh, I would imagine, is a story that could and probably will have enormous implications around the world. And it's just another application of this stem cell research uh, becoming more mainstream, more and more people talking about it. I know that some people have, uh, you know, hesitation around this, but that's a really, really incredible story. I mean, we could lead off the show with this story to put it in perspective. Absolutely. I mean, the idea in my lifetime, it, you know, it, AIDS, HIV has gone from being absolutely deadly, a death sentence, to uh, there being the possibility of having uh, a long life. Yeah. And so this and now a possible cure. This is this is groundbreaking. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Uh, wanted to update on a couple of other stories uh, before we go. And uh, we're still looking forward to this trip out to the mountains. My Jasper memory is coming up in just a second. Uh, wanted to let you know that the uh, writ has been issued for the Fort McMurray Lac Labiche by-election. Now, if you're outside of Alberta, you might be like, why do I care about this? Why do I care about a region in northern Alberta holding a by-election for one seat in the Alberta legislature? What's significant about this after Alberta's chief electoral officer, Glenn Ressler, confirming uh, that this writ issued, this was yesterday, to administer that by-election uh, to elect a member of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta is, of course, Hoyles, that Brian Jean, the former leader of the Wild Rose Party, has secured the nomination for the UCP. He will be running for a seat in the party where he is promising to work to unseat the leader. This is it's not even a Trojan horse because with the Trojan horse, the horse did not announce that there were people inside. This is not even a Trojan horse. This is Brian Jean saying, I'm going to come in and win under the banner, and then I'm going to come in and try to take the leadership away from the premier. Uh, Jason Kenney, of course, is going to fight tooth and nail against this, but all eyes will be on this March 15th. The Ides of March, by the way, the day mm -hmm. where Julius Caesar was stabbed about, I don't know, I'm saying that with a smile on my face. Julius Caesar stabbed about 60 times. The Ides of March, uh, leadership changes abound. The date was not lost on people yesterday. No, I mean, it, it will be significant. It'll be interesting to see what does take place on March 15th. Uh, I mean, some people have been kind of questioning, you know, Brian Jean wasn't able to do anything significant for the party yeah. previously. So why would anything change now? Um, I guess it just, it's a wait and see. Yeah, it is a wait and see. I want to put both of you on the spot here. Hoyles, you first. 
You think Brian Jean's going to win or lose the Fort McMurray by-election March 15th? Um, you have to just geez. pick win or lose. Yeah. What does your gut tell you? Win. Win. Sam? Win or lose, Brian Jean, March 15th, Fort win. McMurray. Win. win. He's like a folk hero on Fort McMurray at this yeah. point. Like yeah. Brian Jean, is, is, he's going to cruise to victory on this one. Jason Kenny may out-organize Brian Jean provincially, uh, but I don't think he's going to out-organize him in Fort McMurray. So I think that that'll be a, a three for three. If- well, I mean, like also out-organize him in Fort McMurray. Like what's Jason Kenny going to do? Is he going to run a smear against his own candidate? Yeah. <laughs> Like, quite frankly, yes, yeah. <laughs> that is what he's going to do. We'll see. I wouldn't rule anything out. He, keep in mind, he's got his leadership review coming up as well, which will be in April. So it'll be about three weeks after the Fort McMurray by-election. Will that have some implications? I would imagine. Be interesting to see. You can send us your thoughts anytime. Now, you know, every Wednesday uh, we have a chance to, to fill our lungs with fresh air. As I say now, it may be metaphorically speaking, or maybe you're lucky enough to be streaming us on the Mixler audio app. You're on your way right now to beautiful Jasper. We hit that midpoint in the week and we observe my Jasper memories presented by our friends at Tourism Jasper. Now, we have a a bit of an unfortunate announcement to make. And this is for, for those of you skiers, including Hoyles. Unfortunately, uh, they've had to make a decision based on extenuating circumstances to cancel the Nordic Fest in Jasper. But... If you've already got accommodations booked out there, if you've already got your heart set on getting out there, this does not mean that you can't still enjoy Jasper's thousands of kilometers of trails. Of course, it's one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth to strap on those cross-country skis, get out there and enjoy the beauty of Jasper National Park. Uh, Some of the best trails, not just in Western Canada, but across the country and around the world. So much to discover out in Jasper. Now, this does mean it gives us an opportunity to talk about Jasper's Devour Film Festival. This is the Film Food Festival. It's coming up in Jasper March 11th through March 13th. So you've got just over three weeks now to book your accommodations to confirm your attendance. Devouring the Canadian Rockies is returning to the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge this winter. If you've got a love for food and film, uh, maybe a love for wine along with it this winter in beautiful Jasper National Park, this is your invitation to cozy up to the Rockies while you celebrate cinema, indulge in exquisite food and wine, and experience all that the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge has to offer. You can learn more by checking out jasper.travel slash real talk. And if you really feel like spending some time virtually in the mountains today, if you go to that website, you'll be able to check out all of our past features. And there are so many celebrating the different angles and the different reasons why so many people flock to Jasper every single year. Now, we always invite you to use the hashtag MyJasper and the hashtag RealTalkRJ when you're posting your Jasper memories, because you may very well wind up featured every single week here on the show. And we want to get to a couple of the tweets we received. I love this one from Michelle, who let me know that as our family was out in Jasper last week, so was she. She says, I'm a proud Patreon supporter of Real Talk. She says, it's changed my trust in terrestrial media. Michelle loved to hear it. She says, today, uh, the day she's posted this, she and her family were in Moline Canyon. She said, it was breathtaking. And she shares these amazing photos. Wait, 
Good job, guys. You got the ice cleats on. You got the helmets on. It is one of the most surreal experiences you can have in Canada, this Moline Canyon ice walk. And then again, why not pop back and see it in the summer? A completely different experience in one of the most beautiful spots in the National Park. This was another tweet that we received. We love seeing your photos, including these ones from Nicole. I actually ran into Nicole when we were out there at the restaurant. Nicole's actually who busted me having a maple smoked old fashioned. She tweeted about it. And so I said, okay, we'll try February's taking a hit and pause outside city limits. Nicole and I had a good laugh. She said, look at this driving home through the mountains, seeing the sun. She says, we're trying to avoid burnout. And this was our weekend getaway, a mini vacay. She says, I needed a break. Look at these wide angle shots that she's sharing with apologies to those of you listening on the podcast. You know, you can catch our My Jasper memories on YouTube anytime. And of course, we're going to tweet this out as well. Just beautiful photos from Nicole using the photos, hashtags, My Jasper and Real Talk RJ. Thanks to our friends and our partners at Tourism Jasper for this weekly trip out to the mountains. It's something we look forward to every single Wednesday. Coming up on tomorrow's broadcast, we wanted to follow up on our conversations around healthy living. Some of you are feeling the same pressures we are and you're looking for positive outlets. And if you talk to the experts, that means diet, sleep, and exercise. In our roundtable tomorrow, three experts, including my very own personal trainer, Graham Duty, an absolute legend. That's coming up tomorrow on Real Talk. We'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Sam Brooks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Tanya Franklin, merchandise operations Katie Cook-Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.